0: unrest so much unhappiness and so much heartbreak and so much wrongdoing in the world and that's basically the theme of chapters one to four and Paul pushes every button he possibly can to prove that it's not just one group of people it's everybody the Jewish people from whom he comes may feel that they have a special closeness to God and there's an awful lot in that but at the same time that doesn't mean they're not guilty before God there's no human being who's perfect there's nobody who does everything that's right And uh, as far as the Gentile world is concerned, well, that's just getting worse and worse as Paul sees it. And so God has an answer to this. And in chapters 5 to 8, we've looked at these chapters which talk about the heart of the whole answer. How God's answer works, what had to happen so that it could be forgiven. The sort of words we've been singing in the last few hymns talk about that. And also what it does, how it changes your life, how it makes you a different kind of person, (coughs) brings you back to life when you've been dead. And then you have a section in the middle of the book, which is not quite so popular as those early bills, which talks about the Jews in particular. And that's chapters 9 to 11, the ones we've been doing most recently. It talks to well, what about the Jews then? If God has found this new way of accepting people, which brings the Gentiles in, are the Jews out of it? And we've been looking at that over the last few weeks. Over the next few weeks, right to the end of the year, we'll be looking at chapters 12 to 16, which is where Paul says, okay, that's all I want to say. Now, how do we apply this stuff? How do we make it work out in real daily life? And so that's still to come. But in, in chapters 9 to 11, which is where we are at the moment, we've been looking at the whole question of what, how Jewish people and Gentile people, non-Jewish people, fit together into God's people. And it all comes down to the question, how do I get to be right with God? And we looked at this in chapter 10, the last time we, we looked at Romans, and we said, said Paul talks there about two different ways of trying to get it right. One of them is that I work hard and I try to do it myself. Try to keep my nose clean. Try to do the right stuff. Try to obey every tiny little regulation of the law. And uh, that's one way of trying to get right with God. Paul says it doesn't work. There's another way. I stop trying and accept God's mercy. I just go back to God and say, look, I'm an imperfect human being. I cannot be any better than I am. You have to change me from the inside or I'm sunk forever. And Paul says those two things are the righteousness that is by the law on the one hand, and the second one is the righteousness that is by faith. And he says that's the key for both Jews and Gentiles, having the faith that God will forgive you and accept you back into his family. And the key verse in chapter 10 we saw was that if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So it's a case of identifying publicly with Jesus and saying, yes, I am a Jesus follower. Using your mouth, letting people know where you belong. And it's an internal matter. Really believing that Jesus has risen from the dead and he's alive today. And therefore, if you're a follower of his, there are certain things that you've got to do. For it is with your heart, says Paul, that you believe and are justified. And it's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Now, towards the end of chapter 10, Paul starts saying, what is it that's the the matter with the Jews? Because this guy has been bombing around the ancient world now for at least 10 years, uh, probably quite a bit longer, trying to tell people about Jesus, and he's had great success with Gentiles. He really has. There are Gentile churches, non-Jewish churches, all over the place. With the Jews, it's a slightly different story. What did he usually do when he got to a new church? He was head straight for the Jewish synagogue. And he'd preach in the because there, there were people who knew the Old Testament scriptures. They knew what he was talking about. They understood what God had done down through the centuries. And based on that, he'd present Jesus to them. And some people would believe. But in lots of places, eventually, having thought it through, the Jews would start saying, no, no, we don't want this. No, go away. And sometimes they'd make trouble for him. They tried to stone him to death. They got him put in prison. They did all kinds of things. And so Paul says, what's wrong with my people? And in chapter 10, there are three key uh, theories that he comes up. First of all, he says, well, perhaps it's that they didn't hear. Didn't they hear? Yes, they did. Okay, he says in the next one, didn't they understand? Yes, they did. And finally, he says, well, maybe it's that they just don't want to listen. They've pushed it away from themselves deliberately. And he starts talking at the end of the chapter about various barriers, and we looked at them last time, which keep Jewish people from looking at what's really theirs by right. Because they were God's chosen people. It was out of their midst that the solution to the whole world's problems came. And it's theirs. And they won't accept it. So, where does this leave us as we start chapter 11? Let's read some verses. Chapter 11, verse 1. I ask this. Did God reject his people? That's the Jews. By no means. (laughs) I'm an Israelite myself. A descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. And that word really means whom he chose. Don't you know that what the scripture says in the same passage about Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left and they are trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time. There is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace it is no longer by works, if it were, grace would no longer be grace. What then? What Israel sought so earnestly it did not obtain, but the elect did. The others were hard, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, even so that they could not see and ears they could not hear to this very day. And David says, may their table become a snare and a trap a stumbling block and a retribution for them. <coughs> May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs bent forever. So, what's Paul saying here? Well, he's in the first part of three things that he wants to see through the chapter. First of all, he says, God does not save everybody who claims to be Jewish or in fact is Jewish by birth. But God has got a remnant. And so the first bit of the chapter is about a remnant for God. God keeping some people Uh, out of a nation which has rejected him second it talks about riches for the world and we see that further on it talks about the fact that israel turning their back rebelling against god has been great riches for the world because all of these gentiles have been able to come into god's plan so we need to look at that in the the middle section of the chapter and finally at the end he says jew and gentile we're all going to be coming together because god loves us all and so it's going to be a reconciliation available for everybody So, verses 1 to 10, we've read already, we'll have a look at that in a moment, about being a remnant for God, then there's 11 to 24, 25 to 36, we'll see these as we go down. Let's look at the first though. a remnant for God. What we've got to realise is that God sometimes works with small numbers. God loves Israel. Every single Jew who ever lived, but not every single Jew who ever lived is accepted by God. Now that, as we've seen in previous chapters, is not God's will. God wants everybody, everywhere to come back to him. But there's a tension between God's limitless authority on the one hand and human ability to choose on the other. Just because God is in charge of the whole process doesn't mean that free will, human will, is ruled out. And if people say no, then God honors that decision. But God nonetheless, somehow, how do things, God's sovereignty and our free will work together, how that works together, we just don't know, we can't imagine. But somehow God makes it that there is always a small group left. Paul talks about Elijah. The people of Israel in Elijah's day had uh, turned their back on their ancient religion for 40 years. For a whole lifetime in those days. People had gone away from the God of Israel. Sure, the temple was still there. The stories were still told. People were still brought up to realize that they were something special. But they'd been worshiping false gods for a long, long time. And Elijah uh, carried out a tremendous miracle. You can read it in 1 it, Kings 17 to 18. And then lost his nerve. He had a nervous breakdown. And he ran from one end of the country to the other. And Okay, if it was a small country, but that was still quite something. When he got to the other end, he went into a cave and sought. And he'd worked out exactly what he was going to say to God if he had a chance. You read it twice in the Old Testament because he's rehearsing it as he goes. And when uh, uh, God comes to the cave and in a still small voice speaks to Elijah, we're telescoping this story. It's a brilliant story, you've got to read it. But when he sees Elijah and Elijah comes to the mouth of the cave, God says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah starts on his prepared speech. I have been very faithful to you, O Lord, my God but they have torn down your altars. They have stoned and killed your prophets. I, even I only, am left, and lo, they seek my life to take it away from me. This is not good stuff, God. He says, the Israelites have rejected your covenant. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. And God says to him straight away, what are you talking about? I have 7,000 people that you don't know about who are still following me. I've reserved 7,000 people in Israel, all those whose knees have not bowed down to Baal. And all that Elijah, who thought he knew exactly what was going on, can say is, uh, you have? Because <laughs> he's no idea those people exist. And God has in the most desperate situations, people who maintain the testimony and keep things going. And you find that in situation after situation. Uh, for example, if you look at the, the Muslim world at the moment, uh, I read a news item recently which says this. After traveling 250,000 miles through the house of Islam, as Muslims call their world, Dar al-Alam, career missiologist David Garrison came to a certain conclusion. Muslim background believers are leading Muslims to Christ in staggering numbers, but not in the West. They are doing this primarily in Muslim majority nations, almost completely under the radar of everyone. And incredible things are happening because in countries where it would seem that Christianity has completely died out, been thrown out, there are Christians who are quietly working away and a small remnant is becoming a massive flood. This is a church in Iran. This is the place where in the world right now people are becoming Christians at a faster rate than anywhere else. It's unbelievable. Under all of the situation that they're going through and you might think, look at this, and, this, and there's not much going on here few old people headscarves old men yeah. actually there aren't many young people in that picture but look at this guy he's somebody who is in america now but has been planting house churches throughout iran for many years now because he's good at internet stuff social media and so on he's doing it from america in ways that are inventive and creative which are reaching people all over his country for nearly 21 years he says i've been involved in ministry for the persecuted church i've planted several house churches and taught discipleship and leadership courses within them After moving to the United States, I discerned a call to equip the Persian church through social media platforms. My goal is to use the power of online education and social media to train true leaders. I store all my teaching and videos on my social media platforms, and I mentor all my trainees online, meeting with them in person a few times a year in a safe country in Central Asia. And that's right, it's got a big booming website. Have a look if you like, but you've got to speak Farsi to read it, apart from that. Um, it's, It's brilliant stuff. Meanwhile, my wife and I host a weekly Christian fellowship on Instagram for Persian-speaking people in secret house churches in places like Iran, Afghanistan, and Tajikistan. Never thought Instagram could be used for something like that. Incredible. People tune in from all over the world. We worship God together and pray for each other. We have the chance to share the gospel with Muslims who live in regions we could never hope to visit. And so God can take a small remnant and build it into a mighty, mighty flood. God sometimes works with small numbers. But Paul also says in this section, the small number aren't heroic people who deserve to be what they are. The small number doesn't deserve any a, a, any more than the others because what God gives is simple grace. Nothing we deserve. It's not that God looks down on a rebellious nation and says, oh, there's a nice Jew. Oh, there's one who understands the Old Testament. Oh, we'll save those ones. no. God accepts people simply by grace. It's God's undeserved favor to people. And so if you're a Christian, if you understand things that the next-door neighbor doesn't, if you have a, a, a certain knowledge of Jesus, you can say, he's mine and I'm his, in the way we were talking about earlier. on. And most of the people in your street can't. Don't think that it's because you're nice and special and warm and cuddly. Eh? It's just because you've got God's unlimited, unreasoning favor, unconditional love descending on your head. Be awed, be grateful, but don't be big-headed. So that's the second thing. The third thing he says in this section is the others are given hardened hearts. And you might think, now, this is totally unfair, isn't it? God picks up some people and makes them objects of his grace and his mercy and his love, and everybody else is in, yeah, I'm going to give you a hard heart that you will never understand. You will never respond. No, I don't think that's what's going on here. I think, in fact, people harden their own hearts and God allows it to happen. You see, this is just a way of speaking that you find through the Bible. It starts back in the days of Moses in the Old Testament. If we're there, you remember Moses goes to to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not listen to Moses and Aaron just as the Lord had said to Moses. And you might think it works a bit like Moses is saying, let my people go. And poor old Pharaoh who sees that this is only fair and just and right and proper, thinks, oh, I'd love to, but somehow I can't. Mm, What's happening to my heart? I'm becoming a monster. And that's not the way it was, obviously. When it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, it means that Pharaoh put his foot down and said, no, I'm not. No way. What God allowed to happen was for Pharaoh to use his own free will to say, no no way, you're not getting out of here. And, uh, the, the total sort of perspective of the ages you can see how god's in charge of the whole process and using that hardening of the heart to bring about the exodus and the mighty deliverance of the Jews. but it looks from a human perspective doesn't it if god is deliberately hardening the heart of a man who actually makes his own decisions so it's not like that let's look at the next section shall we let's read some more verses from chapter 11 verse 11 Again I ask, when Paul uses that phrase, that means he's using on moving on to a different stage of the argument. Again I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world, and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their fullness bring? I'm talking to you Gentiles because there are Jews and Gentiles in this church in Rome. And uh, the Gentiles have been there for a while. The Jews have only come back after Emperor Claudius expelled them a few years before. And so Paul now rounds on the Gentiles who've been there, who think we are the fathers of the church, these Jews. Well, we'll let them in for Sunday services, but we're in charge here. I'm talking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, was Paul's job, I make much of my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy. And save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, the riches of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the part of the dough offered as first fruit is holy, then a whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, then so are the branches. If some of the branches have been broken off and you, boy, oh, a wild olive shoot have been grafted in amongst the others, and now share in the nourishing sap, that olive root. Do not boast over those branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root. The root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. <laughs> Granted. But they were broken off because of unbelief. And you stand up by faith. Do not be arrogant, but but be afraid for if god did not spare the natural branches he will not spare you either consider therefore the kindness and sternness of god sternness to those who fell but kindness to you provided that you continue in his kindness otherwise you also will be cut off and if they do not persist in unbelief they will be grafted in For God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that's wild by nature, and contrary to nature were cultivated into a cultivated cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? (coughs) So Paul is saying, just because riches for the world have come through Israel's rebellion, that doesn't mean that God is completely finished with, with Israel. He's saying, yes, the straying of the Jews has been brilliant for everyone else. It's fantastic that God has used their turning against their own Messiah, their rejection and their crucifixion of him to bring salvation to the whole world. That is absolutely brilliant. But, first of all, that doesn't mean that the Jews are beyond recovery because God has all sorts of future plans for his own nation. And also, that means that non-Jews can't be big-headed. They should be grateful to God, but they should also be afraid. They should read the Old Testament and see, how did Israel fall away? How does unbelief start in a human heart? I mean, they were never accepted by God because of the good stuff they did. They were God's people by faith. And the same thing applies to anyone who's come to God and says, God, I don't deserve your mercy, but I really want it. I want you to take me and make me a member of your family. The same thing happens. And if they fell away you be careful that the same thing doesn't happen to you now i believe very strongly that the bible teaches that once you're a christian you don't lose your salvation (laughs) when you're a real christian once in christ in christ forever thus the eternal covenant stands i believe that but i also believe that it's possible to think you're a christian for a long time and then drift away and you end up in a nightmare land where you just don't know whether you are a Christian or not. You don't know whether the whole business is true. You just lose all consciousness of where you are. And that's a terrible thing to happen. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, I'm very serious with myself. He says, I beat my own body and bring it under. And it, in Greek, that phrase really means I give myself a black eye. It's a strange thing to do. But he says he treats himself strictly. In case that, having preached to others, I myself should be disqualified by the prize. It's possible to preach to others. It's possible to look on the outside just like a real, true, fantastic, going for a Christian. And yet lose your faith and drift away and find out that you never really had it in the first place. The only assurance that you have got is that you're still going. That God is speaking his word into your heart. Once you allow that to stop happening and you go off in your own direction, you will not know for sure. Only God will know exactly where you are any longer. So Paul uses three pictures to say this is why God isn't finished with Israel yet. The first one is the picture of the first fruits from the Old Testament. That's in verse 16. He says when the Israelites used to bring their sacrifices to God, they bring the first fruits at the start of the year. A little bit of the crop that they hoped was going to grow and grow and grow in their fields. And the first fruits that they brought to God were sanctified. They were holy because they were offered to God and God blessed them. And the idea was that once those first fruits had been blessed, the whole of the rest of the crop was holy as well. And so Paul says that's the way it works. And so uh, just because God is blessing a very small remnant now, that does not mean that he doesn't have big plans for the whole of the rest of of, of the Israelite people. So the first fruits are the first picture. Then there's a picture of the root. He's saying, yes, just like wild olives, you guys have been grafted into the the cultivated plant. And that's something that actually they used to do in Israel in those days, apparently. If you were growing olives in in your fields, um, eventually, after several generations, the cultivated olives would look a bit tired. They wouldn't be producing as much fruit. They wouldn't have as much vitality. So you'd go out on the hillside, and you'd find some wild olives. And you'd cut off some branches, and you'd bring them back and graft them in. And the the life and the vitality and the sap that was in that wild olive would make the olive, say, oh yes, let's go again. And suddenly the cultivated olive would take on a new lease of life. That's exactly what's happened, isn't it? All of these Gentiles are coming to the church. And it's just, just made an amazing new picture of what the people of God is going to look like. What God's final view for the world is going to be when people small and great stand before the throne of God. When the, the people praising God are as many as the, the stars in the sky for multitude, as many as the grains of sand on the seashore. That is the ultimate picture. And that's happened since the Gentiles are being lifted in. But when you go out on a hill and <coughs> cut some wild olives and you bring them back to improve your, your crops... What do you do with them? If you leave them on the kitchen table, they just wither and die too. What you've got to do is take them and graft them into the original plant. So that there's one plant. And where is the life coming that nourishes those new branches that have just been grafted in? It comes from the roots, and the root is still the same. And so Paul is saying here God doesn't have two plans, one for the Jews and one for the church. He wants to bring us all together into one great family. That's what God wants to do. And so if you are a wild olive branch that's been grafted in, you belong in the plant, but the original plant is still there. So be grateful for your Jewish heritage. Be grateful for all that God's people have been through through centuries because that is what you have come into. This is where you have been grafted in to God's eternal plan. And don't think that God is finished with Israel and that you are something new and different. No, you're not. Then uh, verse 24 talks about the natural branches as well, doesn't it? As we saw. If you were cut out of an olive tree, wild by nature, and contrary by nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these natural branches be grafted into the olive tree? You take a wild olive branch, graft it into a cultivated plant, you're taking a bit of a chance. It might take or it might not. A bit like a heart transplant or something like that. might work, might not. You take something that's from a cultivated olive branch and try to graft it into a cultivated olive tree, and what happens? It's very, very much easier. It's so much simpler. And so the Jews use their traditions with a religion that they've kept going for so many hundreds of years, a respect for the Tanakh, the old testament, that that, that has, has taken them through the centuries. How much easier, when God unleashes the floodgates, will it be for Jews to come back to him? it's predicted in the old testament isn't it zechariah 12:10 10 never yet been fulfilled and i will pour on the house of david and on the inhabitants of jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication then they will look on me whom they pierced yes they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn they're going to turn round and see jesus as he is not the source of the holocaust and pogroms and all of the horrible things that have happened to the jews down through the centuries but as the one who brings together everything that is involved in being jewish and unites the world's families as one people that's what's going to happen so the final section then 25 to 36 is about reconciliation for everybody Now, I am not going to add to my reputation for going on too long by reading the verses here, so I'll just advise you to read them when you get a chance. But basically, the picture you get from those verses, and do read them, because they're important verses, are a bit like this. This is how Paul sees the future and the past as happening. First of all, Israel, back in the past, becomes God's chosen people. God chooses them, unconditional love, and says, you are going to be my vehicle to the ends of the earth to show my glory. fallen world so that people will start to see what what it is the possibilities of God and humans coming together Israel rebels against God at the same time after Jesus dies on the cross non-Jews flock into the kingdom and Paul says this is where we are right now the Israelites have have strayed away in in, in large numbers and non-Jews are flocking into God's kingdom instead but one of these days there'll be a day when Israel turns back to God in great numbers it's coming We don't know when it's coming, but it's coming. And when that happens, then the final stage will be complete and both those who have turned back to God and the non-Jews who are currently flocking into the kingdom will form one great people in God's mercy. will come to all the people of earth. Can we see something like that happening in our own day? I don't know. All I know is that since 1948 and the establishment of the state of Israel, all sorts of interesting things have been happening. Do you know that when Israel began as a, 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 a new nation in, in 1948, there were 23 people in the country who believed in Jesus who were Jewish? That's all there were. In 1948, 10 million Jewish people who'd survived the Holocaust, 600,000 were living in Israel. Of these, only 23 believed in Yeshua, Jesus, as their Messiah. There were lots of. Missions and churches of Westerners, expats, people like that, but no messianic (coughs) congregations, Jewish Christian churches at all. In 1989, Israel's Jewish population had grown to 3.5 million, and now you've got something like 1,200 messianic believers in 30 congregations scattered around the country. By 1999, 4.8 million Jews were living in Israel. Now you've got 81 Messianic congregations and an estimated 5,000 believer. These Messianic congregations are not necessarily popular in Israel. So this is an unwanted surge. And both uh, secular and, uh, and Jewish media are talking about this in Israel today as something that's unusual and unexpected. In 2017, 300 congregations. It's becoming increasingly difficult to accurately identify the number of Jewish Christian believers in Israel. But a conservative estimate, is something like 30,000. And around the world, we believe there are something like 350,000 Jews who are in Messianic congregations and accept that Jesus is the Savior. You might say 350,000, that is not much against 7 billion population on earth. But it's a start. Things are happening. And these people who look incredibly Jewish <laughs> are actually Jews who are Messianic believers. You might say, well, not many girls. your a picture, and that's absolutely true. i have a look at this one. <laughs> this is a, a, a picture of a, a messianic congregation in Israel. And you can see the banner of them. says, Arise, shine, for the, the light has come. The, the, the glory of the Lord has arisen on you. And uh, uh, one young Jew uh, who's become a Christian says this. My generation has a passion for Jewish life and for the most part has worked through the identity crisis of being Jewish and believing in Jesus. We are comfortable being authentic to ourselves, which means being devout Jews and devout Yeshua followers. This generation gives them great hope and I firmly believe has great promise. And when you look at other countries, you see the same sort of thing happening. Look at Ukraine, which for much of the 20th century had the largest population of Jewish people outside Israel. And obviously through the, the uh, the, the Nazi years, And the early, early communism, that population suffered horribly. And you just need to go to Babi Yar on the outskirts of Ukraine, where they were gunned down and left in in massive numbers to see how violently the message was delivered to Ukraine's Jews that we Westerners and our own religion and we don't want you. Even in Ukraine today, (laughs) there are large Ukrainian messianic congregations and Ukrainian Jews are finding reality in jesus in just the same way despite the fact that they've been treated by supposed followers of jesus for much of the 20th century so this is what paul is looking forward to it seems to me in chapter 11 some of these one of these days there is going to be a great in gathering of god's people and that will be a sign that jesus is on his way because when jew and gentile together come together around the messiah god has sent God's purpose will be fulfilled and so Paul ends and I will end too (laughs) with a little poem at the end of chapter 11 which sums up all of the teaching that's gone on in these 11 chapters and sort of says by the way this is the end of the teaching and this is what it all means oh the depth of the riches and knowledge of God wisdom and knowledge of God how much of these judgments well let's not read it let's just look at three things that this poem actually says first of all it says you're in the hands of someone who knows more than you do Paul looks at Paul, God's wisdom, God's knowledge, God's ability to bring things together. Things. However could he have done it apart from this? This is the only way God could ever bring sinful humanity, Jew and Gentile, back to himself. Knock down the middle, middle wall of partition between them to make of them one new people. This is incredible wisdom. And your life is in the hands of somebody who knows better than you. We can be like Elijah in his cave. Saying, Lord, I'm sulking because... It's all been wiped out. If you haven't noticed, Israel's falling towards God. And then God says, No, Elijah. 7,000 people that you've never met. I have resources that you don't know. We get to positions in our life, don't we? Where we think, It's impossible. It's a blank wall ahead of me. There is no way out of this. There is no way I can recover this situation. But God's wisdom always has the answer. You are in the hands of somebody who knows more than you do. Second thing this says is you're in the hands of somebody who owes you nothing. Who has known the mind of the Lord or has been his counsellor? Your wisdom is on a completely different basis. God doesn't need to tell you what he's thinking about. Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? God owes you absolutely nothing. He doesn't owe you an insight into his plans for the future. And he doesn't owe you something that you've paid into the system. God should do this for me. And God should do that for me. But despite that, despite the fact he owes you nothing, he pours out his love upon you. He blesses you abundantly. He gives you his unconditional favor. You're in the hands of somebody who owes you nothing and yet loves you as if he did. That is incredible, isn't it? And the third and final thing is you're in the best place a human life can be. For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. If you're a Christian, you have become part of God's total plan for bringing the whole of the cosmos together. You are reconciled to God in Christ and one of these days you will see that in Jesus Christ the whole universe will be (coughs) reconciled and God's plan will be complete. And you right now are in the best possible place you could be in the entire universe because you are part of that forward movement of the nation towards what God wants to achieve. If you're not, talk to somebody afterwards.